The following audio is from Hope Hill Church. To learn more about Hope Hill Church, please visit hopehillchurch.org. All right. As I mentioned before, uh, Rodney gave message here this morning, and uh, he, uh, he's, he's got a powerful word. You guys are in for a treat, that's for sure, you know. We are, uh, we are taught about God's promises. We are taught about, actually, not only the promises that he's made, but the commitment that he's made to us. And, and sometimes those commitments are, are full and wonderful, and they bless us. But at the same time, we do have consequences when we make the wrong choice. And he's going to be talking about to that to, today. So, Pastor Rodney, please come on up. It's yours. Well, good morning, everyone. How's everybody doing today? All righty. Let's go ahead and stand so we can open in prayer, and we're also going to read uh, the Word of God today. Uh, we'll try to do that in unison if we can. How's that? Father, we thank you for this day that we've come together, the blessing that you bestowed upon us. And God, we know we're not here because of the fact that we're great people and We've done all these wonderful things, but we're here because of the sacrifice that you made, the sacrifice that Jesus made, the guiding and leading of the Holy Spirit. And we ask that you, Father, you, Christ, and you, Holy Spirit, guide us through our discussion. Today, our time of worship, as you've been with us there, let it also extend into this time of studying your word, that when we depart from here, we are not the same. Amen. If you have your Bibles, and this will be up on the screen too, we're going to be reading from Hebrews chapter 6 as we talk about this subject, a promise of God. Just, just stand up. In the Old Testament, when they read the word, everybody had to stand up. So we're just going to go old school on you guys. So Hebrews chapter 6, starting with verses 13. But when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, surely... Blessing, I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply you. And so, after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end to all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise, the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation, who have fled for the refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us. Even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of of Mel Chisholm. Please be seated. The promises of God, and we said we we're going to talk about a promise of God, but it's important to understand that, and it's good to understand and know that our God is a promise keeper. The things that he says he's going to do, the things that he has promised he's going to deliver, and in this short scripture verse, we see three things and three reasons why God is a promise keeper, and we can count on that. Number one, the promises are confirmed by an oath of God. In verse 14, it said, he swore by himself, for there is no one higher. Because he doesn't, he's not accountable to anybody. He is preeminent above all. So when he makes a promise, it's as good as gold. The promises of God, number two, are founded in his inter- eternal counsel. 
in verse 17 it says, and this counsel of his is an immutable counsel. He's not going to change. You can depend on it. It will be consistent. And the third reason we can count on God keeping his promise is this. For him to lie would be contrary to his very nature and his will. We read in this passage of scripture that it is impossible for God to lie. Impossible for God to lie. And we see an example of this thing, of the fact that he's a promise keeper with the prophet Balaam in Numbers chapter 23. So we would have to flip all the way back to the Old Testament and Numbers, you know, where they're reading off a whole bunch of, a lot of people's names. And we would see Balaam having this conversation with Bala, Balak that goes something like this. God is not human that he should lie. Not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? Have I received the command to bless? He has blessed, and I cannot change it. I think several months ago I preached to you, and, I, and my sermon came from John 3.16. And in John 3.16, we have the two major promises that God makes to man. As a matter of fact, every other promise is associated with those. They all lead up to these two promises. And we remember John 3.16 says for something like this, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And in that scripture, we see the promise of heaven and eternal life. And we see another promise of hell and eternal damnation. Well, today, hell is a promise of God. And that is the promise that we're going to talk about. Hell, a promise of God. Now, let's talk about what some people say about this thing called hell. You know, some people say, well, you know, there's really no hell. So, for example, if you're a Buddhist or if you're a Hindu, you believe in reincarnation. If you do bad things, you'll come back as a rat. If you do good things, you'll come back as a higher being until you reach this state of nirvana. So there is no hell. We have others that might say, well, granted, yes, there is a hell, because, you know, we have to do something with all these very bad people, the rapists, the murderers, the child molesters. They have to go somewhere. There is some type of punishment that has to be exacted against them. So there has to be a hell. It's amazing, though, that even in the church, the discussion of hell is kind of disappearing. According to some reading that I did from this group called the Gospel Coalition, they gave five reasons why you don't hear about hell in church. Reason number one, they have subtly bought into a version of the prosperity gospel where, you know, everything is good. Reason number two, they've idolized the love of Jesus to the neglect or denial of the other attributes of God. They have tragically, your number three, 
they have tragically dismissed the view of God's holiness and what his holiness demands of his people. Number four, they believe in pragmatic. They're pragmatic. They have a pragmatic approach to ministry. No, got to talk nice to people so people will come and they will hear the gospel. And if we talk nice enough to people, they will come to accept Jesus Christ. And the fifth reason that churches are saying less and less about this issue of hell or sin, for that matter, is they fear man more than God. A professor at the University of Chicago Divinity School, Mr. Martin Marty, put it this way. If people, people being Christians, really believe in hell, they will be watching less basketball or even TV preaching. They will be out rescuing the lost. But now we know what people say about the Bible, about hell or don't say about hell. Let's look at our chief authority, the Bible. What does the Bible have to say about hell? Well, we always like the four W's or the five W's. The Bible gives us four W's and an H about hell. First of all, who's going? The unbeliever and the unrighteous. What is hell for? It's designed for eternal punishment. When do you go to hell? Upon your death. If you're outside of the ark of safety of Jesus Christ, your destination is hell. Why? Because you have decided to reject Jesus Christ and the work that he did on that cross for you. And how long do you get to enjoy this place? Eternal. Because there is eternal punishment waiting for every non-believer that has rejected the love of Jesus Christ. But hell is also talked about in the scripture even more. There's this place called Gehenna. That's a word that is used to talk about hell in the Bible. One of the words. And that, that's the Greek form and it means the valley of Hinnom. Now this was a valley that was outside. It was just west just west and south of Jerusalem. And what happened was it was just the garbage dump. And so they took all the refuse, all the spoiled food, all the garbage, all the dead animals, and even the executed criminals were dumped in this place. And to take care of that, there was a constant fire that was going on. Never stopped. Day after day night after night, burning and consuming all of this refuse, all of this trash, all of this filth. Now, Jesus used this awful, uh, awful scene as a symbol of hell when he discussed hell. He told us things like this. Hell is a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. He also talked about in the book of Matthew, as well as in the book of Luke, that hell is where there will be wailing, weeping, and gnashing of teeth. In the book of Revelations in chapter 19 and chapter 20, we see hell as a lake of fire burning with brimstone. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 20, we understand that the false prophet and the beast as well as all of those who stand at the great white throne of judgment, will be cast eternally into this place called hell. 
how we are. We have to experience things before we can really understand them. So Christ understanding this whole thing about man's nature, before I can believe something, I, you know, I got to see it and believe it. So what Christ does in this story about a rich man and Lazarus, he goes on even more to talk about hell and what it's like. But before we break it down into pieces, I'm going to go ahead and read it to you. Starting with verse 19 of chapter 16, it says, it says, uh There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar called Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat. What fell from the rich man's table, if I could just, brother, can you spare a dime? Even the dog came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom, depending on which version you read. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far off was Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me, and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. And, but Abraham replied, Son, <laughs> remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family. Five, five brothers, let him warn them that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they've got both, and they have the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said, if they didn't listen to Moses and they didn't listen to the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. So let's look at this place and this story a little bit further in a little bit more detail so we can get the experience that Jesus is talking about here. In verses 19 through 21, the first thing that we see, we see the life before. And we have this contrast of life before. We see the rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen, who lived a lavish lifestyle. He probably even had silk underwear under that he rode. He just walked around because he had everything. He had the money. He had the power. He had the fame. He had everything he needed so that he could live a wonderful life. And day after day, he just stepped over Lazarus as he was going about his business. But then there was a guy by the name of Lazarus, a beggar, who was in such bad shape, he had to be carried. He didn't walk. He didn't ride. He had to be carried to the gate so that he could just get some morsels 
not even functioning right. He could not even keep the dog away from him who came and licked his skin. Killed a demon. In verse 22, though, something happened. In verse 22, death came. And the scripture says Lazarus, uh, Lazarus was carried to heaven by the angels. You see, when we die, our souls as a believer will be immediately taken to heaven. There's no purgatory as the Catholics might believe. There's no soul sleep as the Seventh-day Adventists might believe. Immediately, we will be taken to this place. And so, we find that Lazarus, who was in temporary poverty, now lives in eternal riches. Just imagine. Lazarus now gets to walk down the streets of gold. Just imagine, Lazarus has a house, a place that he can call his own. Just imagine, there's no more pain, there's no more sickness, there's no more suffering, there's no more tears. Just imagine, as Lazarus turns to his right, he sees the Father sitting on the throne in all of his glory. But then there was the rich man. It said he was died and he was buried. Oh, but what a funeral that had to be. I can just imagine. The mayor wrote a proclamation for the city. The president showed up. There were memorial services. People were coming by with flowers. All the rich folks were coming by with flowers. When they had him laid out in the coffin, somebody probably walked by and said, Or somebody else might have come up by and said, boy, they fixed him up real nice, didn't they? But he has traded in his temporary riches, his temporary riches for eternal poverty. Because the rich man who had everything on earth has nothing but agony in hell. Verse 23 through 25 of our scripture talks a little bit about the senses and the fact that your senses will be awake and active when you're in hell. The scripture says in verse 23 that he looked and saw, so he will have sight. We see the fact that he wanted to have water, a tip of water, just a thumb. Just imagine how much water you can pick up on your thumb and put on your tongue given to him. He will have taste. He will be able to speak and hear because we know about the conversation that he has. He will feel the agony of the flame. He will hear Abraham's reply to his questions and he will hear the screams and the yells of the agony of all the other unbelievers that are with him. And guess what? His memory will function. In verse 25, Father Abraham says, son, remember. Remember you received your rewards while you were on earth. Remember all the riches that you had. Remember all the times that you walked past Lazarus, who just wanted to get some crumbs from your table. Remember the fact that you denied God. Remember the fact that you turned your back on Jesus. Remember all of the disobedience. Remember the lying and the cheating and the stealing that you did. Remember, you turned a deaf ear to the Holy Spirit. And he said, there's no remembrance. Remember all those things. 
see a description of this place in verse 23 and 28. Hell is a place, according to these scriptures, a place of torment, everlasting chains, eternal punishment, everlasting destruction, where the body and the soul are destroyed and there is unquenchable fire. And not that the body is going to be destroyed, because think about it. If the body was ever completely consumed, that means you would be out of your agony. But if you're suffering eternal punishment, that means you'll just feel the pain of the flame. The pain of the flame. The pain of the flame. The sorrow of the separation. place of fire, a place of agony in verse 23, in verse 25, a place of separation because there's that big chasm between the two. But even there, if something happens, I like to call most unbelievers not yet believers because they may not be believing today. Oh, but they're going to believe. You see, this man goes through a change of heart, starting in verse 28. He says, I beg you, Father, send Lazarus. The rich man makes this request for his brother based off his experience through, uh, of thoughts and emotions. The torment of hell drives this rich man to have something that he didn't have before. That is compassion. The torment of hell drives him to remember his family and his brothers. The torment of hell drives him to beg to have a beggar warn his family. The same beggar that he never talked to or would listen to is the beggar that he wants sent back to his family. But what is the response? They have motives. They have problems. They have the law. They have all of that stuff. So even if we were to send someone back, it would not, if we were to send a man back, it would not change his heart. And that is the picture of hell. But I want to take a moment and read a poem. And it says, you taught me many things that are true. I called you friend and trusted you. But I learn now that it's too late. You could have kept me from this fate. We walk by day and talk by night. Why did you not show me the light? You let me live, love, and die and knew I'd never, ever live on high. Yes, I called you a friend in my life and trusted you in joy and strife. And yet, I'm coming to this end. I see that you really weren't my friend. There's a song that a pastor friend of mine used to sing. And it went, all the promises of the book are mine. Every chapter every verse, and every line. I'm leaning on the promises divine. 
the promises of the book are mine. At the outset of this discussion, of this message, I told you that God was a promise keeper and he could be counted on to keep his promise because he made an oath because of his own eternal counsel and because he will not lie. So where does that leave us today? That leaves us in two groups today. Group one, the friend. You know, the friend that let their so-called, or should I say the so-called friend, that let their friend go to hell. The friend that had the word of life, that had the love of Christ, that knows the power of the Holy Spirit, whose life has been changed, who's walking in eternal glory right now, who's moving to heavenly places, that guy, that girl, but will not share that book with the other friend. I wonder if you're in that group. Or are you in the other group, the friend, that has a destiny that is only filled with agony, with pain, with grief, with torment. Those are the two great promises. The promises of heaven and the promise of glory. Our question today is, what are we going to do with this? If you're a believer full of the Holy Spirit who loves the Lord, I I ask you as we have our time for prayer that you think about someone that needs Jesus Christ and that you pray for them and that you move toward them this week. Whether you send them an email, write them a letter, go by their house, or give them a phone call, that you do something to show the love of Christ. And for that other group, if you know in your hearts of hearts that you haven't confessed Jesus Christ and that you're going to go to hell and you're going to experience this agony, I say, I don't care if you do it right where you are, accept Jesus Christ. Turn to your neighbor and say, pray for me. Come up to this altar and ask to be prayed for. Meet someone in the back who will pray for you. I don't care where you do it. But as I praise and worship team sing, I just say, Our guy's going to heaven, and our group going to hell. Respond.